Bibles this morning to uh, Colossians chapter 4. <clears throat> when Lance stood up here, both my, all three of my kids said, Is Lance preaching today? And um, I, I said, No, he, he wasn't. Um, I am. We're in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Before I actually get there, I want to update you on an um, item with the, the church. It's been in your bulletin for a long time about our deacon candidate, Doug Sosnowski. Um, we are, you know, it's been a, a long process, um, longer than we hoped, but that's kind of how it is. He's been presented as a, as a candidate for a deacon at Rock Valley Bible Church. And I don't think that just kind of he's been out there and just, you know, nothing much has been happening. There's been some things that have been happening. I've been meeting with him uh, kind of early on after we announced this, continue with some doctrinal studies with him. Um, he has continued to interact with the leaders of the church. He's begun attending our leadership meetings. We've spent extensive time scrutinizing, examining his character. He's been before you all uh, as a model to just see, you know, what is the character qualities of First Timothy 3. Are they true in Doug? Is he a servant? You know, those kind of questions. We've seen that. We have um, put his service right before you. Um, I've gone out to lunch with his accountant. Just, you know, one of the things that qualifications, qualifying someone for an office is that he has a good reputation with those outside the church. So I went to someone outside the church, and uh, this guy's not a Christian at all, and uh, talked to him just to see what Doug's character was like in the workplace. I spoke with his wife about his character, and now we're nearing the end of this process. The next thing on my list is I'm going to call every single family in the church just to say, hey, Doug Sosnowski, put him for him. You know him. You've seen him. Any questions about the process? Any concerns? Any thoughts? And uh, some of you have come to me. We have uh, worked through some of those things. If you haven't, I'm going to you. And so you can expect the call hopefully this week. Uh, it's my goal. I'm not sure if I'll get to it, but I want to call every family in the church just to just say, hey, you know, what, what do you think? We've done that with Lance. We've done that with Gordy. And we're going to do that with Doug. We want to move forward unified on this whole process. So that is that is taking place in the next step. Um, and then after we talk to all the families of church, we'll decide a, a time in which we'll install them. We'll, we'll let that be known to you. So just be in prayer about that and um, really be thinking, preparing yourself for, uh, for my call this week, hopefully. Well, let me read Colossians chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 5 and 6. Paul writes to the believers there in Colossae, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your, let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you'll know how you should respond to each person. And again, when our text is small, I like to read it again. You've kind of got an overview. Let, let's read again here. Here it says, it says, uh, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. These words address the basic areas of our Christian conduct. They address what we do and what we say. Verse 5 addresses our actions, the things we do. Verse 6 addresses our speech, right? The things that we say. And appropriately, my message is titled, Christian Conduct and Speech. The way we act, what we do. My first point comes in verse 5. It's simply this, walk with wisdom. Walk with wisdom. I get the phraseology from this word here in verse 5 that says, conduct yourselves. 
you have a, a note, it might say literally it means to walk. Walking in the Bible is oftentimes used to describe just someone how they live. It talks about just the, the things that they do. And in fact, Paul in Colossians has, has used it this way. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul was praying that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He, he's praying that their actions, the way they live, would be worthy of the Lord. He said in chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. In other words, as you've received Christ, so live appropriately. That's what he's talking about. In chapter 3, verse 7, he says the same things. talking about these sins that you also once walked and you were living in them. And there you even see the parallel idea there about walking and living in in them. And so this is the fourth time he uses the word walk. I'm not sure why the translators deviated at this point, but they did. But I'm picking it up. Walk with wisdom. You can even see it there in verse 5. Walk with wisdom. Particularly, he's talking here about walking with wisdom towards those outside. Now, he talks about outside. <clears throat> he's not talking about those out in the cold, right? He's not even talking necessarily about those outside of the church building. He's talking about those who are outside the faith of Christ. When Paul used the term outside... He's talking about those who've never bowed the knee to Jesus. He's talking about those who have never seen the glories of Christ, never seen their desperate need before a a holy God, and never seen fit to cry out to Jesus who alone can save them from their sins. And you know what God does to those people? He just lets them go. He says, if you don't want me, I don't want you. You just go. And God gives them over to their sins. You can read about that in Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 26 and 28. They walk wherever they want to go. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And in this sense, they are outside. They're outside the covenant community. They're outside of faith in Christ. And as we live our lives every day in this world, you know, we rub shoulders with these kind of people every day. We rub shoulders with them in the marketplace, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace. People are like this all around us. In fact, I would even venture to say, it's probably certainly true, the majority of people that you encounter out in the world are outsiders. They know nothing of the grace of Christ. Their eyes have been blinded by Satan, as 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says. They've not been opened up to see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. They're walking in their own ways. They're outside the church. And what the exhortation comes here in verse 5 is that we need to walk with wisdom towards those who are outside. And really, as we think about this, there are... There are really two perspectives coming on here about walking with wisdom towards those outside. On the one hand, you need to have the wisdom of how to keep away from the destructive influences of the world. Uh, this, this would be like standing apart because of their wickedness and their sin, and we need to do that. But there's another aspect of the wisdom that we need to know. We need to know how to use our interactions with the world to let our light shine before men, to be the salt of the earth. In other words, we need the wisdom to know how we can be in the world, but not of the world. Because we are in the world, but we need to keep away. The Scriptures speak abundantly of the dangers of the influence of the world upon our soul. Time and time and time again, Israel particularly was told, when you go in to possess these lands, don't participate with them. Don't intermarry with them. Don't have anything to do with their practices. They're pagan and they're not following me. A good summary is Leviticus 18, verses 3 and 4. You shall not do what's done in the land of Egypt where you lived, 
nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. In other words, when you go into the land, don't do their practices, but follow my precepts, right? Keep yourself distant from the world. Proverbs is filled with exhortations about how important it is to, to stay away from the influence of those who don't fear the Lord. Proverbs 1, verses 10 and 15. If sinners entice you, do not consent. Do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. Proverbs 4.14 Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil men. There's a path of the wicked man. Don't enter that path with him. Stay away from him. Proverbs 22.24 and 25 Do not associate with a man given to anger. Go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. The New Testament picks it up. Ephesians 5.11 Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. They're committing unfruitful deeds of darkness. Don't participate with them. But rather, have true religion. James chapter 1, verse 27 Keep yourself unstained by the world. Now there's some who take some of those passages of Scripture and take them very seriously and they try to escape from the world whatever it takes. They like These are like People who moved to Montana just to get away from the wicked, sinful world. They, some, some live in communes. Some pull their children out of public schools. Some throw away their television sets. Some shop only at Christian stores to keep themselves free from this. Some involve themselves only with Christian activities and they think themselves to be wise. And there is wisdom in some of these things. Okay? There is wisdom. None of these things are wrong in and of themselves. Sometimes it's good to, to get away. I know a father who's having a difficulty with his daughter. And he's saying, you know what? We just need to move. He's moving away for three to six months just to remove his daughter from this situation, this problem. It's a very wise thing to do. Personally, we homeschool our kids. And we are massively involved with Christian activity. So I'm not saying that these things are, are wrong in and of themselves. But there's an extreme that some seek for, which is quite frankly impossible. They want to totally remove themselves from any ungodly influence. And then they miss they miss the call of God upon our lives. In trying to escape from the world, they miss the call of Christ to go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. You see, because God doesn't call us to, to separate into our own little Christian shells never letting the world see or touch us in any way. Rather, He calls us to be different, to be light, and to be salt, to come into that world, to permeate it, to, to influence it, rather than it allowing it to influence us. You know, it's a very interesting passage. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells of this letter that he had written to the Corinthians. He had told them not to associate with immoral people. And I think the people of the church then did this extreme, pulled themselves away, didn't associate with immoral people. And Paul clarified what he meant. He said this. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all with the immoral people of the world. Think about that. He said, I'm not telling you to separate from the immoral people of the world or the, the covetous or the swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to actually go out of the world. The implication there is impossible. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother 
if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Think about, think about what he's saying here. He's saying this. You've got two outside people. Two people are outsiders. One of them is an outsider who has no clue that he's an outsider. He's just an average immoral person. Right? He's not bowed the knee to Christ. He doesn't has no understanding of the demands of Christ upon his life. Makes no profession to be a believer. And Paul says that one, you associate with that one. But the one who professes to be a believer and still lives in those ways, who actually is an outsider because he lives in those ways, though his profession says that, Paul says, don't associate with that person. So you see the wisdom that we need as we deal with those outside the church? Those who profess to be a believer but live in sin, you should stay away from them. Those who aren't professing to be believers and making no profession but enjoying their sin, Paul says you can associate with those people. In fact, that's what Jesus did. You think about, think about the life of Jesus he walked upon the earth. There was a group of people where he, he distanced himself strong and hard from them. Can you think who they were? They were the religious people. They were the Pharisees who professed to be in, but Jesus knew them to be out, and so he held them at arm's length. He rebuked them with the harshest words imaginable. He said, they look clean on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. And yet, who did Jesus associate with oftentimes? He associated with the sinners, those who, who didn't quite understand, didn't made no profession of godliness. After Matthew was converted, Matthew gathered together all of his fellow tax collectors and sinners and invited Jesus to come to the party. And did Jesus say, no, I need to stay away from those people? No, what did he do? He went right in there with them. Now to be sure... Jesus came with the healing balm of the gospel and didn't participate in their unfruitful deeds of darkness. But he didn't run away and hide. He acted with wisdom towards those who were outside. In fact, so much so did Jesus associate with sinners in this circumstance that it was the habit of others that they would call him a friend of sinners. And I think that Jesus here was demonstrating the abundant wisdom he had in dealing with outsiders those who professed religion but were outside, he held off. But those who made no profession who were outside, he loved them and demonstrated his care for them and called them to repentance and faith in him. And I'm sure that as people continued to love their sin, then, you know, there's a distance that he certainly gave. But he went after them and he helped them and he served them and he preached to them. And in this way, he was walking with wisdom towards outsiders. And I would, I would really ask all of you, to really think and pray and seek the Lord's will of how you should be involved in the lives of unbelievers. My guess is, thinking about the, the makeup of, of Rock Valley Bible Church, we do a pretty good job of staying away from those things. Lots of homeschooling families here. Lots of people understand the stain of the world. Lots of people, lots of Christian friends. And I think, if this doesn't apply to you, that, that's fine. I think that we need to be pushed back in to engage the world more. That's, that's just where our tendency is, I think. That not, might not be you, and I know in some circumstances, you know what the problem is, you need to separate yourself and you need to get away. But I think there are some of us who need to perhaps think about how we can make the most of our opportunity. Which is what verse 5 says. We need to think about wisdom, how we deal with these outsiders. And Paul says here, we need to make the most of the opportunity. We need to redeem the time as the King James Version says it. 
We need to realize the preciousness of time that we have because our time here upon the earth is short. Especially our time is short with those outside the church. Our time is short. Now, I saw a great illustration of that this past week. My, my son, SR, recently turned 11. And he celebrated his, his birthday party. And uh, the way he celebrated it was that he invited an old friend to his house. His friend's name is Noah. He lives um, in a northern suburb of Chicago. Doesn't see him hardly ever, but really likes him, really enjoys time with him. And so you know, our family was talking with their family, and the agreement was that Yvonne would go and meet Mrs. Williamson halfway, and then they'd go part. You know, Noah and SR would be here in Rockford and spend some time playing, and then they'd go back at the night again. So you spent maybe three hours driving. She spent maybe four hours driving. It was a lot of driving commitment. Just to, But SR understood the shortness of time. We said, okay, SR, you're going to have Noah here with you. And um, do you want to like maybe go out to dinner or go out to eat with him? And he said, he said, no, because when you go out to dinner, you order and have to sit and wait. And I don't want to like waste my time. I want to be playing with him. And I don't want to just sit in a restaurant and wait. And so... They decide on McDonald's, right? Fast food, fast service, and they also have the play set there, you know, at McDonald's. So they went and they played. And then at one point, this was, this was SR's quote. He said, Mom, let's go home because I've only got four hours left to play with Noah. He knew the brevity of life. He knew the brevity of time he would share with his friend. Now, that's not to give any offense, little boys, okay, Ryan and Preston. He, he's your friend too, okay? But you know what? He sees all of you a lot. And it's not quite so special. It's not quite so short. But he knows that Noah is off. He doesn't see Noah very often. And I want you to think about the time you have to spend with those outside the church. Just think about it. I was thinking about my, my, uh, my neighbors this past week. Just trying to think about those around... Our house. So you think about maybe four or five houses around us. And, uh, you know, with one family, we're pretty friendly with them. We're on good terms with them. We speak nicely with them. And I think probably this whole year, we probably spent two hours with them. I'm thinking of the neighbors behind us. I think this whole year, we've probably spent 15 minutes in conversation with them. Our neighbors to the side of us and across the street maybe 30 minutes. I mean, you had everything up of the whole year. That's probably what it is. Is the time short? And then you think about the number of non-believers outside that you just really pass by and never see again. Perhaps people you meet, never see them again. The time is short and we need to make most of the opportunity that we have with them in a wise way of dealing with outsiders. And I love how Jesus made the most of the opportunity. Remember in John chapter 4, after a long day's journey, he was tired, and so he sat by the well. And you ever be tired? Men, you ever tired after a long day of work? Ladies, you ever tired after a long day at home or at work or whatever? What do you want to do? You want to sit there and sit and maybe watch some television or something or take a nap. And that's exactly where Jesus was. And uh, this woman came up, and Jesus made the most of the opportunity and preached to her. As a result of preaching to her, she believed and she brought many in, in her city to believe as well. I think about Peter. A beggar was asking alms for him. And rather than just saying, no, I don't have anything for you, he said, no, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but here's what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. 
He just he turned that into a, an opportunity. I, I think about Paul, and he is an amazing man who used the most of his opportunities. He traveled from city to city. He went straight to the synagogue because there was going to be his chance to preach the gospel. It was there that he could speak to the Jew first, and then when they rejected him, he could go, go to the Greek. And uh, we get a picture of what happened in the synagogue in Acts chapter 13. When he went to the synagogue at Sydney in Antioch, there was a, a man who was running the synagogue and said, Brethren, <clears throat> if any of you have a word of exhortation for the people, say it. Basically, open invitation to preach a word of exhortation. What did he do? He stood up and preached Christ to them. Later on, he traveled to Philippi. Philippi, I guess we can presume there was no synagogue there, but on the Sabbath, he was going to find the believers, to find the God-fearers anyway, right? The Jewish people. And so he went down by the river where there supposedly was a place of prayer and he met a few women and, who feared God. So he opened up to them and told them about Jesus and one of them, Lydia, was converted. Soon he found himself in prison in Philippi. And rather than wallowing in self-pity, he made the most of the opportunity with those outside the church. You remember what he did in prison, right? It was about midnight. It's all dark around. He's saying, you know what, I'm, I might get out of here today. And these people are here. I think it would be pretty rude to kind of shake them and, and wake them up and just start preaching to them. Besides, you can't even see. We'll just pray to God, he and Silas. And they were singing praise to God. And just... Do you think he was just doing that just personally, just for himself? Or do you think there was some kind of overflow thinking about the implications about these other prisoners in prison? I think he knew full well that as he was singing, these prisoners would uh, kind of wake up. And it said all the prisoners were listening to him. Acts 16, verse 25. He didn't just sing to sing. He, he was singing to give praise to God, to stir these people, to cause them to to think about how is this man different? The, the prison conditions back then, there was nothing to praise God for for being in the prison back then. And yet, they're making the most of the opportunity and we're praising the Lord. On in Athens, right? He was speaking with those in the synagogue and in the marketplace. He had a chance to speak in the Areopagus because of what he was doing before. He was making the most of every opportunity. When the book of Acts ends, we find him under house arrest in Rome, welcoming all who are coming to him and preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. And we knew that some of his ministry in Rome converted some of his uh, prison guards. He writes about that in Philippi, in, in the book of Philippians. And then it just says that he took the opportunities that he had to speak forth. And God was opening the hearts of people to believe in him. Well, how can you make the most of the opportunity? I want to again be this week really practical just to stir your thinking. In some ways, maybe you don't know. How can I make the most of opportunity? Um, because there's just wrong ways to do it. And there's right ways to do it. People can be like so bold and stuff. They're actually not walking in wisdom. They're actually making things sour. Okay, They're turning people off. But I've just come up with a few suggestions, a few ideas. And this is just scratching the surface. I'm sure if we had a... Um, an open forum here and just say, what are ways in which you maximize your opportunity? You'd come up with a lot. I've not done all these. I've done some of these things, but uh, I'm just trying to brainstorm for you just to prompt you. First way, you can advertise your faith. Advertise your faith. Now, I'm not talking about marketing gimmicks, you know, or being obnoxious. I'm simply talking about arranging the affairs of your life strategically with Christian symbols and Christian objects around that make a statement about your faith in Christ. 
Maybe you put a fish on the back of your car. That's good. Maybe you write a Greek word or Hebrew word on your license plate. I've had so many opportunities to share about Christ and God because of our license plate. People always say, Chesed, what, what does that mean? And I, actually, I, I say, it's God's loving kindness. He has been so gracious to me in Christ. I just want to always remember myself, remember that. And, and just lots of opportunities, just because I'm advertising. Maybe it's a, a ring that you wear. It has a little cross on it. I know I've seen that on some of your rings here and your wedding rings. Or maybe you want to put another ring on. It has a big cross on it. So someone says, hey, what's that about? You say, well, it's my faith and trust is in Christ. Um, maybe Christian bumper stickers. Maybe a t-shirt that contains a, a Christian message. Maybe you want to try something like this to advertise your faith. You know, this, this is one of my favorite t-shirts. It's getting a little, a little on the ragged side. But it's, you know, it's a picture. Even you in the back can see it. I mean, it's making a, a statement. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Matthew 6.24 Which side of the fence are you on? And this is a shirt I like to wear. I remember a few years ago coaching a soccer team with my, my kids. And I wear this shirt oftentimes in practice. And we had a team picture. Coaches didn't have a uniform. So I wore this. Just trying to say, you know what? I'm a believer in Christ. I want to make... A, I want to make an opportunity to show you where my allegiance lies. If you have a question, you can ask me. I'm going to walk consistently with this. Maybe it's a mug that you use at work. I had an opportunity one time to work in a corporate world where it looked favorably if you had your own personal mug in the spirit of, um, of um, ecology, trying to save the earth. You know, If you had a mug, you weren't throwing away styrofoam and filling up landfills. And so... Well, you should take a mug that's got the name of Jesus written all over it. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You know, and I had people come and ask me about them. What's that about? And I said, it just reminds me who my Lord is. Gives you an opportunity there to, to advertise your faith. Um, maybe it's other things you place upon your, your desk at work. I, I know one man who put a picture of a graveyard on his desk at work. Why would you put a graveyard on your desk at work? Only one reason. You want to provoke people to use for an opportunity. Say, what's a picture of the graveyard for? This man could respond, well, that's where we're all going to be. And I know I'm going to be there in a few years. And you're going to be there in a few years. But I have a hope that goes beyond the grave. Would you like to hear about it? When I was in a public environment working, I always had these, one of these things by my desk. I just kind of put it right before my, my keyboard and my computer, and um, maybe some of your kids can see that. Aunt Amanda, what is this? Do you know what this is? It's a little baby, 11 to 12 weeks preborn. And um, people say, What is that? And I would take this as an opportunity, and I would say, You know, so this is a little baby, 11 to 12 weeks preborn, when most abortions take place. And I say it reminds me to pray for the unborn and to pray that God would stop the murder in our land. I had lots of opportunities to share that at work when they see that. Cause that's a weird thing to have on your desk. Maybe on um, your computer, a screensaver, a background, right? They can see it. Maybe if you're at a work where you can listen to the radio. Boy, work hard to choose a Christian radio station, huh? Why not? Advertise what's taking place there. It's Christmas time. You might be in the habit of sending out Christmas cards. 
What a wonderful way to advertise your faith and to proclaim the, the glories of Christ. Here is, it's a little track that you can write up, right? Filter in. Well, we try to do this every year. We try to filter in issues with our family and issues with the church. For me, it's easy. I'm a pastor, you know, but, but kind of bring in issues there and kind of bring some kind of hope of the gospel of Christ in there. If you write a family letter out, sprinkle it with some Bible verses. Speak of, of why Christ came. He came to die and to save His people for their sins. And our verse on our Christmas card this year is, um, He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so, people don't know what propitiation is. The girls in the girls' Bible study know what propitiation is. right? But the average person isn't going to know that. So we're going to have something in our letter describing what propitiation is and describe how the wrath of God is appeased in Christ. Just seizing the opportunity advertising your faith. And let me just tell you, a little warn you here. If you use these things, be careful, okay? If you put a fish on the back of your car, like, pay attention to your driving habits. Right? Don't go zoom, zooming along or cutting people off, okay? Or parking illegally. Oh, those Christians. Just give people an opportunity to reproach Christ. If you're going to wear a shirt with a Christian message on it, make sure your actions are consistent. Otherwise, you're going to reproach your Lord. If you're making a statement at work, make sure you're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. If you're making bold statements in your Christmas card, make sure that at your next family reunion, you you walk in the right way before all those who received your Christmas cards. Another way, uh, how about this? Uh, and I, again, I, there's nothing sacred about these. These are some of the things we've done. Some of these things I, I've not done. We don't have a fish in our car. You know, you don't have to do what I'm doing. I'm just trying to say here are things just to kind of open up what you might think about doing. Here's another thing. Decorate your home. When people, people walk into your home, especially perhaps those outside your church, it's helpful if they can feel your home is dedicated to the Lord. My wife is um, skilled at calligraphy and we have many scripture passages over the wall. I've told her many, many times, Yvonne, just fill our house with just scripture all over the walls. And she started, okay? She, she could go a lot further. I would love to do anything with that. But one of the things that we have, and I just I have a, a picture for you. It's just um, a real simple thing. This is um, right in our kind of entryway right when you come in. It says, ask for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We often give this as housewarming presents, and I know that some of you have this in your home. We have others that Ivana has done, but you know what? If you are not skilled in calligraphy, or don't feel like um, asking people to do that for you, you know, there's a really easy way in which to uh, put things up in your house. I, I went to one house that was literally covered all around with uh, calligraphy Bible passages. And um, it's not because the owners were skilled in calligraphy had, you know, had a friend to help them. Rather, what they did is they they purchased, I think it was a Timothy Botts book, packed with all these full-color illustrations. They took their scissors out, start cutting them all, and start putting them in frames. You know, a book for $20, you cut it all up, and you get 50 frames. You could do that. But it brings up issues. You know, people are in your home. They're going to see that, and they're going to have a flavor of that. I I remember one time when um, we were trying to sell our house in DeKalb, um, a realtor was walking through the house and um, with, with a prospective buyer. I didn't know who this person was, but this person actually knew my brother-in-law. And um, my brother-in-law came back to the comment and says, you're, you're, this man asked my brother-in-law, your brother-in-law is 
Is she, is she like pretty religious or something? Just because it's all over, you know. And, and, and there's, I don't know the guy, but he comes into the home and, and, and can see and feel how it's like. And you don't know the impact that it's going to make. When family comes over, unbelievable, just, you know, you put up constant reminders of, um, of the Lord. You might post a little plaque near your kitchen sink with the famous words, right? Only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last, right? Right there, right by your, your kitchen sink so that when you look at it, always remembering of the shortness of time and any visitor comes, right? Oftentimes visitors come, they stand in your house, they stand by the kitchen sink and they can look at that. They go, oh, what is that? You, know, you can talk about just how your, your goal in life is to love Christ. We, we've distributed pictures of the church on the back table, right? We've encouraged you, put those on your refrigerator. That's one way you can decorate your house if you want to. Well, advertise your faith, decorate your house, create your opportunities. Create your opportunities. Rather than kind of maybe being passive, you can be a little bit more active in this. I think it. That comes here in verse 5, right? Making the most of the opportunity. Well, why don't you make opportunities that you can make the most of, right? Coach your children athletic teams. Play in a community orchestra. Get involved in a chess club. Join a quilting guild. Have international students in your home. Organize a block party where you're setting the agenda, not them. You know, get some sound speakers, play some Christian music, have an opportunity just to say, hey, thank you for coming to our house. you got a barbecue in your backyard. Thanks, we're having a, a good time. Let me just tell you the most important thing in my life and just, you know, speak for three minutes about Christ. I know some people have come to faith because of block parties. Uh, Grace Church of DuPage, Tom Harkis did some and they're faithful people at the church ever since just because someone was, was faithful in reaching out to their... Um, their parties. Uh, write a personalized gospel track. I know one businessman who's working on a brochure that he can hand out to his customers with a, a message of the gospel on it. It's really it's personalized according to him and his business. And I, I've read a preliminary draft of it. It's great. And he's going to kind of say, you know what, this is, this is what's most important. Yeah, the, selling, the thing I'm selling, yeah, that's important. But you know what, this is the most important thing. And just putting that out there, putting it in people's hands, that's creating opportunities. If you want to be with outsiders, go to be with them. Go to Rockford Rescue Mission and volunteer there. Run for a political office. Right? Write press releases and send them to the newspaper with hope that they get published. Write letters to the editors. Right? Take Christmas cookies over to your neighbors. Ask, ask uh, co-workers leading questions. When I was in the workforce in the secular world, one of my favorite questions to ask is I always asked my, my um, co-workers, I said, so how was your weekend? How was your weekend? It's just genuinely showing an interest in what they did during the week. And um, they, they told me what they did the weekend. And you know what question oftentimes come? If you ask that question to someone, what are they going to do? Ask it right back to you. Oh, so how was your weekend? And he said, great. You know, Saturday I, I spent my time around the house, had some things that I needed to repair around the house. I did that. Um, but, you know, it really was the highlight of my week was coming on Sunday morning and being with the people of God. I tell you, I just love... Going to church. The music, very honoring to the Lord. You can talk about Jake and the, the crosses. Boy, there's a solo song talking about, I have seen the light. His holy name is Jesus. Talking about just the Christmas message and very honoring to the Lord. And then you say, you know what? There's, there's this great preacher at church. And this guy is, uh, is unbelievable. He just, the, the life that he shares and his love for us. I mean, it is, it is awesome. You need to come to listen to him, right? 
you can say what you want to say, okay? But <laughs> create your opportunities. In these ways, as we do this, we advertise our faith, as we decorate our home, as we create opportunities, we'll be prepared to walk with wisdom towards those outside the church. Let's move on to verse 6 and, and talk with taste. Talk with taste, my, my second point. And, and really, this, this is a natural, uh, a natural jump to what Paul is, is talking about there. Let your speech always be with grace. As though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You know, as you are advertising your faith, as you're decorating your homes, as you create your opportunities, you need to be ready to respond as well. You need to be ready to speak. You need to be ready to talk. You know, Peter's counsel to the scattered, persecuted believers was to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's within you with gentleness and reverence. And Peter said, you just be ready because as their faith was overcoming in the midst of difficulties, they were going to be asked. And as you provoke people to ask questions or to say things, they're going to ask you and you just need to be ready. You need to be ready with a response. When people see the picture of the graveyard on your desk, you need to be ready to know what you're going to say. When people see the picture of the church in your refrigerator, right, you need to be ready to know what to say. When people comment about your t-shirt, you need to be ready what to say. And you need to think through the questions which people might ask. Right? It's what I think verse 6 is talking about. We need to respond in an appropriate way. And our, our speech ought to be always with grace as though seasoned with salt. Now, this metaphor here with salt, you know, it's really difficult to know exactly what Paul's getting at with this. There's some who understand salt, what it does. You put it on food, it makes the food taste better. So, what Paul's talking about is um, how to make God attractive and taste better and savory. And our talk should make people thirsty for God. And, and I tell you, there is truth to that. We need to speak in a happy way, a joyful way about God. Because that will make God attractive and it will be savory. That's being salt. Now, there are others who say, no, well, salt in the ancient world was a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators or freezers back then and, and they mixed their meat and their food with salt. And so, our speech needs to be like a preserving agent. It needs to um, prevent corruption. That's what salty speech means. There are others who say that, you know what? What he's really talking about, salt, whenever it touches something, it has an effect. It makes food taste better. It, if rubbed into a wound, it's going to make that sting quite a bit. Therefore, you know what? Our speech needs to have, have an effect on people's lives. It, it needs to do something. It needs to stir them one way or another and you know what? You can argue till you're blue in the face exactly what Paul has in mind here. I think that uh, all these things are probably encapsulated around it. And the reason why is because when you don't know exactly what something means, just look at it in context. And even here, we see the purpose of why our speech should always be with grace and why our speech should be as though it's seasoned with salt. Here it is. So that you will know how you should respond to each person in other words, our speech is to have the characteristic about it that we're always, that always responds appropriately to each and every person with whom we interact. Just appropriate response. That's what it means. Because that's what he said. That's the whole purpose. Whatever it means, it means that we need to have an appropriate response to things. And that's why I tried to describe it with taste. You know, the, the English word taste has lots of different meanings. 
Okay, it can talk about physically tasting, like like savoring, like I was talking about earlier. But it can also talk about the appropriate word, the tactful word. People can say, "Oh, these words are in good taste." Right? They're just they're proper words. They're said in the right way. And I think this word taste, I'm trying to encompass all these meanings of being savory, of being preserving. Right? Because a tasteful word is appropriate and will, will preserve the direction of the conversations. It will have an effect. And so I just simply say this, our speech must always be in good taste. And notice even here in verse 6, as we talk about our evangelism and making the most of the opportunity with those outside, how personal this is. Right? We're responding to each person appropriately. And, you know, this isn't a call to mass evangelism. This is a call to just a personal one-on-one, just talking appropriately is what this is. And you can have speech which isn't salty. I remember it was a, a time I went to a worker at a store here in Rockford. And uh, this guy works in the checkout line at a store I've gone to on a number of occasions and I've seen him before. And one time in the summer I was wearing my, uh, I was wearing my shirt, actually. And uh, as I had my, my shirt on, he saw it, kind of run my things through, he checked them out, and then he quoted a scripture over me and just, you know, encouraged me in the faith, kind of called himself another believer, and basically kind of just put a blessing upon me as I went. And I said, you know what, that's pretty nice, and I, I appreciate that. I make a Christian statement, he responds back to me like that, and um, was encouraged by that. Uh, I went into the same store a few months later. Came across the same guy in the checkout line, and this time, you know what? I didn't have my shirt on. He, there's no way he would have remembered me with the many people that, that come in and out. And uh, you know what? He made a very inappropriate comment filled with sexual innuendos and implications. And the guy lost all credibility in my mind. He was, he is one who failed to respond appropriately to each person. His words changed according to the need of the moment. And he lost it. And that's where Paul is saying, just make sure your, your, your speech is, is, is always such that you're going to respond appropriately to the person. And you know, this is a battle. The battle that that man faced is a battle that we all face, okay? Paul says in James chapter 3 that no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not to be this way. And I know the tension of speaking praise to God one minute and then speaking poorly the next. And that's why it's so important, as Paul says here, we need to speak and respond appropriately to each person. Because you know what? Here's what's at stake. If you don't, the glory of Jesus Christ is at stake. If you don't do this, as we stumble in our words before those outsiders, pretty soon the opportunity that we had to redeem, we just lost. Why should they listen to us? Why should they hear us when we badmouth our boss like they do? When we grumble at the weather, when we're anti-authoritarian, when we grumble at the store manager, when we speak forth words that are unwholesome, why should they listen to us? We're speaking like they are. But oh... Season your words with grace, they'll listen. It is interesting, as we think here about the end of verse 6, you can think about, well, how is it that I should respond to each person? Do I just need to have some great wit about me that always has the instant answer? 
to all those difficult questions that those outside the church ask? Yeah, well, what about Katrina? Well, how about the aborigine in Africa who's never heard? Or what about the tragedy in the, the news recently where the, the man killed four of his children? What about that? Is that a good God? And you can try to think about, well, do I need to be totally educated in everything to be able to respond? That's not what this verse says. This verse doesn't even say that we need to be savvy to deal with everybody like a type A personality. Hey, let me tell you, you know, be able to engage a conversation like a car salesman or something. We don't need to be like that. Here's what we need to be. It's a lot easier than you think. Our speech simply needs to be saturated with grace. The appropriate response to everybody is graceful words. That is speech that's kind and caring and considerate and edifying and thoughtful and sensitive and helpful and beneficial and encouraging. That's how our speech just always needs to be. In no way should our speech be hurtful or insensitive or unloving or inappropriate or annoying or irritating or unhelpful or, or corrupt or unwholesome. And if our speech, as it says right there in verse 6, let your speech always be with grace. As your speech is always with grace, it will provide the appropriate answer. It just will. This verse reminds me of a great passage that talks about our words. Ephesians 4.29 Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. You know what? There is no room for degrading, corrupting, hurtful words to come from our mouth. Let no unwholesome word come from your mouth. But only... Only those words that edify according to the need of the moment. And words that edify are gracious words, grace-filled words, caring, sensitive, encouraging, edifying, helpful words. And we just need to focus, as this talks about, dealing with outsiders by having a speech that is, that is gracious. And a gracious speech will make an effect upon people's lives as we think about our evangelism. So there it is. Let's, let's walk with wisdom and let's talk with taste and thereby showing forth the marvels of Christ walking as a, a believer in a walk. So let's pray. Lord, I pray You'd take these things and that You would ingrain them in our lives so that it would be, it'd be true of all of us. Lord, I think even about Paul. And he, he longed that the Colossians would pray for him. He longed that they would pray for him, that he might speak with boldness, that it might be made clear in the way that he ought to speak. And so, God, also I would pray that we would not miss the focus of prayer on these things. That we're not sufficient for these things. We all know how we haven't tamed our tongues. And we all know how we haven't walked appropriately before outsiders. But I pray You'd give us the grace to do so. This is a matter consistent with everything You've called us to be and to do. Lord, because we love You and we trust You and we know these things are right, give us wisdom as to how much to separate from the world, how much to interact from the world to be a light and salt to a world that's dying in their sin. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.